Hello, and welcome back to All You Need to Know About European History. My name is Nick Whitney, and this second episode of the series is entitled A Grey Millennial Dawn. The arrival of the year 1000 was not a cheerful moment. For one thing, the apocalypse was due, and St John's gloomy prophecies about the end of days had been underlined in the last years of the old millennium by baleful phenomena like Halley's Comet and the spontaneous combustion of the church on Mont Saint-Michel. A great deal of prayer and penitence was called for. Even if we passed the critical date unscathed, there was no reason to relax, given the uncertainty over whether the thousand years should be calculated from Christ's birth or from his death 33 years later. Besides, for many Europeans there was no shortage of more tangible threats and troubles to contend with. True, the successive waves of armed migration from the East, Vandals, various species of Goth, Huns, Slavs and the rest, having washed away the Roman Empire and much of its civilization, seemed largely to have lost their impetus. The most recent horde, the Magyars, had surged into the Pannonian Basin, think Hungary, in 896, and subsequently spread mayhem up the Danube into the lands north of the Alps. But they'd been checked, pushed back to the Hungarian plains, and had, like their predecessors, been progressively house-trained. Conversion to Christianity was the key element in this process, and one highlight of the year 1000 was the coronation in Buddha, on Christmas Day, of Hungary's first king, Stephen, with both title and gold crown supplied by a gratified Pope. Greater stability in Eastern Europe was, however, little comfort to those exposed to the depredations of the Arabs to the south, and Norsemen to, well, the north. We have already encountered the Vikings, pushing through the Russian river systems down to the Black Sea and the lands of the Byzantine Empire. They also, of course, adventured west, most heroically in their explorations beyond Iceland to Greenland and even to the fringes of Canada. Leif Erikson's brief encounter with the North American continent probably occurred in the year 1001. Closer to home, there were easier pickings to be had, raiding round the British Isles and up the Seine into the fat lands of northern France. And not just raiding. In the 9th century, Danish Vikings seized and occupied the entire northwest of England. They might have finished the job, but for the resistance and bribes of the Anglo-Saxon King Alfred. Across the Channel, Viking chieftain Rollo was shortly to secure recognition from the French king as Duke of Normandy, in exchange for his promise of protection from subsequent waves of Viking marauders or settlers. And it was, of course, Rollo's successor... Uh, William the Bastard, who put an end to the continuing Saxon-Viking struggles for the control of England by invading the island himself in 1066. Meanwhile, to the south, Islam had raced like wildfire out of the Arabian Peninsula, where Muhammad had revealed himself as God's messenger in the 7th century. The lightning advance of the new faith uh, across North Africa and on into Iberia was matched by the speed of its expansion across the Middle East. Here, the incumbent powers, the Byzantine and Persian empires, 
had exhausted each other through decades of mutual conflict. They showed themselves devoid of either the will or the means to resist the armies of the Muslim Umayyad Caliphate, now based on Damascus, as they fanned out to east and north. Jerusalem fell to the infidel in 638, Constantinople itself was threatened on several occasions, and the Persian Empire was swallowed whole. Arab armies surged on into Afghanistan and northwest India, and across the steppe lands of Central Asia, until finally running into the forces of the Chinese Tang dynasty, who were pushing west. The collision took place in 751 on the river Talas. That's on the border between today's Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan, if that's any help. The Arabs won, but realised they had come up against a serious power and decided that enough was enough. The Chinese reached a similar conclusion and accepted what would be the outer limits of China's westward expansion for the rest of history. One other significant feature of the encounter may have been the transfer of Chinese paper-making technology to the Mediterranean world. Closer to home, Arab corsairs from the Levant and North Africa raided round Cyprus and the Aegean, and even along the shores of Italy. In the 9th century, they occupied Crete and Malta and Sicily. The eastern Mediterranean was now closed to Christendom. The Arab historian Ibn Khaldun later remarked that the Christians were unable to float a plank on the Mediterranean. Trade collapsed. So the last two centuries of the old millennium gave the medieval European pessimist plenty to work with. In our own time, historical optimism has been the norm, certainly for those of my baby-boomer generation. Things, we thought, could only get better, as the Second World War was followed by decades of literally unprecedented peace and prosperity in Europe, and the collapse of Soviet communism promised the end of history and the universal triumph of liberal democracy. Our children, after the financial crisis of 2008 and the consequent resurgence of illiberal nationalisms, are probably more realistic. But nonetheless, they are still bewitched by the possibilities of the revolution in information technology. Such a faith in progress was unavailable to the early medieval mind, over which the memory of Rome still cast its long and demotivating shadow. The physical reminders of the achievements of that lost civilization were everywhere present, in decaying infrastructure and the remnants of vast structures at which contemporary builders and engineers could only marvel. How on earth had they bonded their brickwork? The recipe of Roman concrete was lost. The Roman Empire and its civilization were a lost golden age, a peak of human felicity unmatched before or since, and one presided over following the conversion of Constantine in the 4th century by a Christian emperor. All that had gone, submerged beneath invading barbarian waves. And as further grist to the millennial pessimist's mill, the recovery of lost unity and order achieved by Charlemagne 200 years earlier had not survived the great emperor's death. Charlemagne, Charles the Great, was the tribal chief of the Franks. The Franks were one of those eastern tribes who had flowed into the territory of the old Roman Empire, settled and adopted Christianity, and then applied themselves to expanding their power base 
and resisting those who tried to follow them. They made such a success of it that they gave their name, not just to France, but also, thanks to their leading role in the Crusades, to Europeans more generally. To this day, leavened bread is known colloquially in the Arab world as Frankish bread. Charlemagne's grandfather, the warlord Charles Martel, was the man who'd halted the Arab armies at Tours. His father, Pepin, then grew his Franco-German kingdom to the point where the Pope summoned his aid against the Lombards, another Germanic tribe who had forced their way into the Po Valley and threatened to move on south. On Pepin's death in 768, Charlemagne embarked on what would be an almost 50-year reign. By constant campaigning, he consolidated an empire that stretched from the Atlantic to the Danube, and from the Baltic to the Mediterranean, with his court at Aix-la-Chapelle, modern Aachen, just over the German border from Belgium. Charlemagne's rule, enforced with his celebrated sword, Joyeuse, became literally the staff of legend. The twelve paladins, or peers of his court, were remembered as a sort of Arthurian company of knights, whose feats included Roland's heroic rearguard action at Roncesvalles in the Pyrenees against the Moors. Oliver's response to the blast of Roland's great ivory horn Oliphant saved the day, but not Roland's life. Elephants, by the way, intrigue at this time. Charlemagne's contemporary, the Abbasid Caliph Harun al-Rashid, he of the Thousand and One Nights, reputedly sent the emperor two marvels of the age a mechanical clock, and a live elephant. Such was the degree of order and control that Charlemagne achieved that in 800 he was able to undertake the journey to Rome, where on Christmas Day, in the Church of St Peter, he was crowned by the Pope as Emperor of the Romans. A bizarre title for a Germanic warlord, it might seem, but a testament both to Charlemagne's power and the extent of his empire and the longing of the age to re-establish the ancient order which the barbarians had smashed. The coronation also symbolised the inauguration of an ambitious new partnership between Pope and Emperor, an alliance of spiritual and temporal power that might hope to dominate Western Christendom. The Pope's needs were perhaps more obvious than the Emperor's, Constantine's embrace of Christianity back in the 4th century had put the Bishop of Rome in pole position to claim spiritual supremacy over the rapidly expanding Christian Church. But Constantine had also shifted the centre of gravity of the Roman Empire eastwards by refounding Byzantium as Constantinople and moving his court there. In later years, as the Empire in the West succumbed to the barbarians, the Eastern Empire not only survived, but flourished. Constantinople, with the magnificent Cathedral of Santa Sophia, grew to dwarf the remnants of Rome. And the 6th century Byzantine Emperor Justinian was even able to reconquer Italy, basing himself on the city of Ravenna, which he beautified with glorious, mosaic-filled churches. The Bishop of Rome whose relationship with the Patriarch of the Eastern Church in Constantinople was as much one of rivalry as brotherly cooperation, and whose hold over even the neighbourhood of Rome was constantly threatened as invading armies came and went, 
and was hard put to it to parley the bones of St Peter into a plausible claim to supreme spiritual authority. Frankish muscle was just what was needed. For Charlemagne, the pact with the Pope offered what every parvenu looks for, status and legitimacy, and a broadening of his horizons. On the way back from Rome, Charlemagne visited Ravenna, and was inspired by what he saw. Back in Aix, he commissioned the eponymous chapel for his palace compound. With its octagonal design and rich mosaics, this splendid building was the first decent structure raised north of the Alps for 400 years. And, of course, the alliance with the Pope also ensured personal salvation. Hard though it may be for the modern mind to grasp, this modern mind at any rate, the Church's position as gatekeeper to the hereafter was treated in the medieval world with a profound seriousness, which the Church's serial hypocrisies might damage but never destroy. The Pope, as Stalin was later to observe, might lack divisions, but he potentially wielded enormous soft power. In the near term, however, the Charlemagne glory years turned out to be a false dawn. His death in 1814 was soon followed by civil war amongst his descendants. In 1843, the Treaty of Verdun divided the empire between his three grandsons, and a disunited Europe again found itself prey to invaders, those Magyars, Norsemen and Arabs. Here I hope you will indulge a bit of a digression on the theme of geography as destiny. For the physical shape of Europe has had a determinant influence on the history of the continent, on its contemporary political geography, and on the political culture of its different peoples. Electronic communication and the 20th century's transport revolution might seem to have largely abolished distance. But it is hard to gainsay that the British remain at heart an island race, or that local identities continue to dominate in the mountainous Balkans. So it is worth spending a moment considering the physical arena upon which Europe's history has been played out. Europe is basically a peninsula, projecting from the western end of the Eurasian landmass, defined by the Baltic and the Atlantic to the north and west, and by the Mediterranean and Black Sea to the south. In the absence of significant physical barriers this side of the Urals, it's hard to determine where, to the east, Europe stops and Asia begins, a problem continuing to this day for the Russians and, therefore, for their western neighbours. Indeed, the northern tier of the peninsula is essentially one long plain, extending from the Asiatic steppe lands through Ukraine, Belarus and the Baltic states to Poland and on across western Europe to France's Atlantic coast. At the bottom of the North Sea, the plain is constricted to the south by various lesser mountain ranges, the Vosges, Jura, Ardennes and Hartz, thus concentrating a disproportionate amount of population and history in the Low Countries. South of this great European plain runs, again east-west, a formidable and near-continuous mountain barrier, from France's Massif Central to the Alps to the mountain chain encircling Czechia, to the Tatra range, separating Slovakia from Poland, continuing as the great curve of the Carpathian Mountains. This barrier has historically made communication between the Mediterranean and northern European worlds difficult 
and has confined it to a relatively small number of north-south routes. In the west, you can simply outflank the mountains by passing through France's Midi into Aquitaine. Moving east, the next option is the Rhone Valley, with its headwaters, and those of its tributary, the Cern, taking you up towards Burgundy and close to the headwaters of a number of rivers flowing west and north, the Loire, the Seine, the Meuse, and most importantly, the Rhine, accessed through the Belfort Gap south of the Vosges. Heading north from Italy, there is no escaping the Alpine passes, and moving east, no further ready route into northern Europe presents itself till the Danube Valley, with Vienna as the gatekeeper. Only two other significant options are available for exiting the Pannonian Plain, that is, Greater Hungary as enclosed by the Carpathians. First, via the Elbe, as it flows down from Prague into eastern Germany and ultimately to Hamburg, and second, via the pass over the Tatras, to the headwaters of the Oder and Vistula, both descending to the Baltic. Human progress in terms of wealth and civilization depends on human interaction. The mixing of peoples, cultures and ideas to stimulate ambition and spur innovation. Which is not, of course, to say that all mingling of peoples is constructive. For centuries, the dominant interaction on the Great Northern Plain was the serial arrival of displaced barbarian tribes from the east. In the Mediterranean world, too, the Arab expansion was felt by Europeans as a firestorm, albeit one that brought with it great gains in learning, culture and technology. If east-west contact in the first millennium was usually destructive, north-south was not always better. Back in the early days of Rome, Hannibal had shown that the Alps were not an impenetrable barrier to invading armies. For much of the second millennium, the Danube Valley was a shifting battleground between Christendom and the Ottoman Caliphs. That said, most of the interaction that laid the foundations of European civilization took place as Europe emerged from the Dark Ages along the north-south, perhaps more accurately south-north, routes just identified. As much as anything, it was geography which determined France's emergence as the centre of European civilization in the Middle Ages, which endowed Krakow with its great university where the Polish astronomer Copernicus identified the solar system, which made Vienna the greatest capital city of all, and which confirmed Germany as Europe's centre of gravity. The importance of these north-south axes is apparent from the threefold division of Charlemagne's empire on his death into West, Middle and East Francia. The first and last of these are recognisable as relatively coherent geographical blocks, indeed as the precursors of today's France and Germany. But what to make of Middle Francia, the long sliver of territory running down the centre, from the Low Countries to northern Italy as far south as Tuscany? It makes no sense in terms of physical geography or ethnic composition, and had only the briefest life, uh, a dozen years, as a geopolitical entity. That it came into being at all can be explained only in terms of human interchange, of the importance of all the human and commercial traffic that flowed up and down the Rhine and Rhone river systems and over the western Alpine passes into and out of Italy. 
and though Middle Frankia may have been broken up almost before it was formed, the ghost of its anatomy can be detected through much of Europe's subsequent history. To this day, Milan and Turin have as much or more in common with Bavaria and France's Rhône-Alpes than they do with Sicily. And northern Italy was to be a constant battleground in the long centuries of struggle for continental supremacy between Paris and Vienna. By the 15th century, the northern half of this crucial strip of territory belonged to the Duchy of Burgundy, and it was the marriage of Holy Roman Emperor Maximilian I to the Burgundian heiress that underpinned the power of the Habsburg dynasty. During the following couple of centuries, roughly 1500 to 1700, when Habsburg Spain, alongside Habsburg Austria, was a major player in Europe's power politics, this north-south swathe of territory assumed great strategic importance. It was the ligature with which the rest of Europe tried to constrain France's growing power, and for 50 years it also provided a vital supply and reinforcement route, the so-called Spanish Road, from the Mediterranean up through northern Italy to the Habsburg domains in the Low Countries. In short, Europe's physical geography runs east-west, but its human traffic historically north-south, representing, it's tempting to say, the warp and weft of the tapestry of its history. I started this episode with the case for pessimism as the second millennium began, reflecting the disintegration of Charlemagne's efforts to restore a Roman Empire and new depredations by barbarians and infidels. But an optimist could equally have recalled that the darkest hour allegedly precedes the dawn and have pointed to some significant lightning in the eastern sky. We've already mentioned the descent of the Magyars into the Pannonian Basin in 896. Yet another Asiatic horde, they were terrifying in their speed of movement and their ferocity, and perplexing in their hit-and-run tactics. Deadly use of the bow from the saddle was their particular specialism. Both before and after their mass migration into Hungary, they raided freely through Europe, across to the Atlantic, and down to the heel of Italy. Until, that is, Otto, Duke of Saxony, dealt them a devastating defeat at Leschfeld in southern Germany in 955. Though perhaps not obvious at the time, this was an historic moment, for two reasons. First, because it marked a turning of the migratory tide. For whatever reason, the Magyars were the last great wave of barbarians to emerge from the east, until the Mongols in the 13th century. And they, unlike their predecessors, went back where they had came from almost as soon as they had appeared. A thousand years of pressure on Europe's eastern borders was giving way to the opposite dynamic, an expansion of Western, or more specifically Christian, influence into the lands of what we today call Central and Eastern Europe. By the year 1000, the local rulers in Bohemia, Hungary and Poland had all embraced Christianity. Good King Wenceslas, that's Václav, ruled in 10th century Prague. But the Western Church did not have it all its own way. The Orthodox Church was energetically engaged in competitive evangelism through the Balkans and up into Slavic lands with which Viking-inspired trade had brought Byzantium into contact. As we've seen, Vladimir the Great opted for Eastern Christianity for Ukraine in 988. As a footnote, 
A visiting emissary from the Emir of Cordoba has left an, a fascinating account of the Slav peoples of the period, given to violent aggression, with beards like glass in their bitter climes. They reject virgin brides as evidently unfit for purpose and have no bathhouses, but they pour water over stone ovens to create steam cabins. A particular asset in promoting orthodoxy to the Slavs was the monk Cyril's invention of a new alphabet based on the Greek, in which the Slavic tongue could be rendered, allowing a vernacular translation of the Bible and a Slavic liturgy. So today's division of Europe between Catholicism and later Protestantism in the West and orthodoxy in the East was largely established by the end of the first millennium. The competition did nothing, however, for fraternal relations between Rome and Constantinople. The second significance of Duke Otto's victory over the Magyars was its contribution to the partial restoration of Charlemagne's legacy. Otto's father, Henry the Fowler, had been elected king of East Francia. An avid hunter, he had apparently been tending his birding nets when word arrived that he was to be king. A bit of a Coriolanus then. Otto succeeded him and was crowned on Charlemagne's throne in Aix in 936. Defeat of the Magyars at Lechfeld gave him the platform to expand his ambitions, and he was soon intervening in the endemic conflicts of Italy, where the Pope was fighting to preserve some freedom of manoeuvre in central Italy against another of Charlemagne's heirs apparent. The upshot was Otto's acquisition of the north of the peninsula and his coronation by the Pope in Rome in 962 as Emperor. Many historians use 962 rather than Charlemagne's coronation as the true beginning of the Holy Roman Empire. Certainly the Pope Emperor Deal and the basis of the Emperor's secular power were now more clearly institutionalised than they had been back in 800. Naturally, brute force, treachery and opportunism continued to prevail. So uh, as soon as Otto's back was turned, hostile forces deposed his Pope and installed a more compliant alternative, whom Otto then returned to oust, and so on, for several centuries. Nonetheless, as Europe's second millennium began, not only were its eastern borders now beginning to look like lands of opportunity as much as of threat, but Christendom now had a political institution which, however imperfect, offered the hope of collective identity and action in a manner unknown since the fall of the Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire is, in effect, the spine of the next 800 years of European history, as I shall attempt to describe in the next episode. Meanwhile, before we finish today, two other developments in the years approaching the millennium are too important to pass over. First, the year 999 saw the enthronement of a new pope who had spent time absorbing Arab learning in Spain and was a keen proponent of the abacus. The bizarrely unwieldy Roman system of numeration made multiplication all but impossible. The abacus, or rather the concept behind it of affording numbers positional value, opened the door to mathematics and proper financial calculation. Medieval exchequers performed the abacus's functions on a checkered cloth or board. As for the second key development, turmoil in West Francia was finally quelled by the accession to the throne in 987 of a certain Hugh Capet. His successors would rule France for the next 400 years, 
moulding it into Europe's leading nation-state. Thanks for listening.